welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. New Bedford, Massachusetts, a seaport located in the southeast corner of Massachusetts at the base of Cape Cod, is the locale of our program. Early in New Bedford's history, a group of Quakers from Boston moved there. New Bedford soon became a safe haven for formerly enslaved African Americans who had been able to escape bondage in the South. The stories of those who safely arrived in New Bedford on the Underground Railroad are presented at the 34-acre New Bedford National Historical Park in the Old Town section of New Bedford. This two-part series on the New Bedford Underground Railroad with National Park Ranger Mark Mello was recorded on September 2, 2016, with the sounds of wind and street traffic in the background. Part 1 begins with a historical perspective of the Underground Railroad and the way in which New Bedford, Massachusetts became a safe haven for former slaves. talk about the Underground Railroad. Obviously, we're not going underground today. We're not talking about a literal railroad. Basically, a loose connection of people, places, businesses, homes. We're going to attempt to get fugitive slaves from down south, ideally to the Canadian border. What a lot of people do not realize is not until you hit that Canadian border are you truly free. Well, there was no slavery in the north. Yes, but that did not mean that northerners were above sending you back into slavery. You have a percentage of people called abolitionists in America, people who believe that slavery is morally wrong. Make up less than 1% of your population in the early 19th century. Most of your northerners at the time are indifferent towards the issue of slavery. Thus the reason why you can travel just a couple miles out to either Dartmouth or Freetown, any of the surrounding towns, you'll still find houses where there are hidden rooms where they hid fugitive slaves. Why? Well, in the town of Freetown, there's one African-American man living there in the 19th century. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb if you're a fugitive slave. Thus the reason why you need to hide and only travel at night. This city, though, was different. There's no hidden rooms, no secret passageways in the city. That is the remarkable thing about it. In this city, a slave could hide in plain sight. Why is that, you might be asking? Well, we'll talk a little bit about that at our first stop, down on Water Street. Across the street right here. So standing on this very spot, some 150 years ago, that is what you would have seen looking down there to the waterfront. Hundreds of thousands of barrels of whale oil lining the waterfront. But how do we get to this point? Well, our story starts with the lovely people who come over in the Mayflower in the 1620s, right? The pilgrims. In search of religious freedom, right? At least we're told in history they're looking for that religious freedom and that religious liberty. Problem. One of the ironic twists in history is that people in search of religious freedom were not going to guarantee it to others who came here. Other early groups to this area are the Baptists, people called Quakers or Friends, and basically, when these people get here, they're faced with an ultimatum from the Plymouth authorities and the Puritan authorities up in Boston. Convert, 
or get out. The Quakers are going to be very important for our story today. The Quakers don't want to give up that religion that they have. They are Christians. They have a lot of interesting beliefs. Not a lot of people are familiar with them today. I always tell people think of that guy in the Quaker oats, the oatmeal box. Typical Quaker garb. Very traditional people. Frugal when it comes to money. But they have some very important beliefs, which is very important for our story about the Underground Railroad. Amongst them is that Quakers believe that every man is his own minister. And every man has a right to interpret the Bible as he so chooses. You don't need a middleman between you and God. But with that, there's a very strong tenet in the Quaker community of equality. So right from the very beginning, you're not going to... Abolitionist population is very small, but a lot of those abolitionists are going to be Quakers. So big deal. Quakers are abolitionists. So what? What does that mean for New Bedford? Well, when they get here and Plymouth authorities tell them convert or get out, they start to spread out. A lot of them go to a small island not too far away from here. I'm sure you've all heard of it, Nantucket. They settle there, and that is where Quakers are going to really start to build the whaling industry in the United States of America, is on that island of Nantucket. Others are going to go down to Providence, Rhode Island. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Roger Williams. He founds Providence on the idea of religious tolerance. But even Roger Williams doesn't like the Quakers. And he basically tells them, you know, you can stay here if you want, but I think you'd be better served moving to an island not too far away from here in what we would call Newport today. So a lot of Quakers settled there as well. But there's a problem for these spread out Quakers, especially the ones who stay on the mainland. War breaks out between the Native Americans and the colonists here in the 1670s. Spread out Quakers, easy pickings for Native American attacks. So what do you do? Congregate, right? Power in numbers. One of the first areas where they are going to congregate is right in this area. It will come to be known as Old Dartmouth. And one settlement will be right here on the shores of the Cushnet River where we now stand today. Well, why is that important? Well, one gentleman over in Nantucket is a whaling merchant. He's a Quaker. And he's sitting back and he's thinking, hey, this isn't a good place to be for this industry. A man by the name of Roach says, hey, there's got to be a better place to go. He's looking. He looks for Quaker settlements. He sees this little place called Old Dartmouth. He sees a little settlement on the shores of the Cushnet River. So the port here is protected from the ocean, not exposed to the Atlantic. We're on a river. It's a deep river. Perfect for heavy laden down ships. Ample supplies of trees to build ships. Ample supply of farmland to supply these ships. Seems like a no-brainer, right? And that's what Roach thinks too. I'm going to go to modern New Bedford. And slowly more of his colleagues over there in Nantucket start to go, hey, he might have a point. And more and more are going to come here. And slowly it'll build and build to the point where in the 1850s, this is the richest city in the world because of the whaling industry. Kind of remarkable. Why is that important for a fugitive slave? So what? Well, what did I say about Quaker beliefs? A lot of them are abolitionists. And who are most of the merchants here in the city? Quakers. Good rule of thumb in history. Where money lies, so too does the power. Guess who runs this city? 
Quakers. So right from the very beginning, the foundation of this city is built upon those Quaker ideals. And should a fugitive come to us in need of help, who are we to say no to him? So that is the atmosphere created right from the very beginning in the city. Another reason, though, why this becomes the perfect place for a fugitive slave to come. And the answer is, right down there at the waterfront, the whaling industry. Come the 1800s, the time period in which we're talking about, Atlantic whales have been overhunted. They still exist, but they are tougher to find. So you think about it. When you go fishing, where do you go? A place where you know there's a lot of fish, or where you might not catch anything. You're going to go to where you know you can catch something. Same idea here. Where are all the whales? In the Pacific, in the Indian Oceans. Problem though, right? We're here in New Bedford. We're not on the Pacific Ocean, are we? No, so how do we get there? We either have to travel around South America or around Africa. That voyage will take you three to five months, at least, assuming you hit good weather. No whale ship ever made can hold enough of supplies to last you three to five months. But if it takes you three to five months to get over there, how long is it going to take you to get back? The same amount of time, right? So it's almost a year in just voyaging to and from the fishing grounds. So in order to catch enough of whales to fill up your ship, you're going to need to stay there for three to five years. So you need to resupply your ship, not only with goods, but a lot of times merchants, to try to get cheaper labor, would leave here with just enough of men to get the ship out of harbor and out to sea. And they travel across the Atlantic following the Gulf Stream over to the Azores, islands off the coast of Portugal, Cape Verde, island off of Africa, the African continent itself, and there, with these island people who are experienced fishermen, we're going to take them on to our ship as crew members. Also, whaling stinks. It's not a pleasant way to make a living. And a lot of those Yankee farm boys who decide, oh, this is a great idea, get to a place like the Hawaiian Islands and realize Hawaii looks an awful lot better than that whale ship you're on. So they desert, they jump ship. We need the crew members though, so where are you bringing them on? Hawaii, the Polynesian Islands, all those places. Whaling's also very dangerous, you're losing people along the way. So you're resupplying not only in goods, but with people. Guess where they all come back to? Right here. What happens to the diversity of this city then? It explodes. Freetown in the 1800s, you only see one African-American man. You can walk these city streets in New Bedford in the 1800s and see almost different, every different race, ethnicity, culture, hear almost every different language, eat almost any kind of food, all on these city streets. Anybody a Moby Dick fan? There's usually one or two in the crowd. In that book, there is one chapter entitled The Street. You're standing on the street that Herman Melville wrote about in the book. And in that chapter, Melville goes as far as to say that there are cannibals who stand on the corners in New Bedford. Again, illustrating to us the diversity which exists in this city. You're a fugitive slave. Are you going to stick out? No. You can blend into the crowd here, and nobody will ever know the difference. 
Now I bring you here for one final reason. And that is because the waterfront proved a major way of fugitive slaves getting into the city. And there's one story of a man by the name of Joseph Smith. Smith's a slave down in the Carolinas, works on a plantation, small plantation, only 30 to 40 slaves on it. One day, a buddy of his, who's also a slave and works in the city, comes back with news that there is a ship in the harbor destined for a city of New Bedford. And not much is known about that city, beside the fact that they claim to be welcoming a fugitive slaves. Smith makes the decision that, hey, I'm going to stow away, and I'm going to try to run away from slavery. Makes his way up the eastern seaboard on this lumber ship, stowed away below deck, finds himself right down on State Pier, which is just on the other side of this row of buildings. Looks a little different today than it did back then, but it's still called State Pier. And he steps up out of the ship, and he looks up onto these very streets that we're now standing in. And what does he see? Thousands of people, hundreds of barrels of oil lining the waterfront. Amongst those thousands of people up here, though, he sees people of all different colors. He sees carriages going up and down the streets. Maybe he sees a prim and proper Quaker elite merchant walking down the street. We want to talk about culture shock, ladies and gentlemen. This is a man who's only come in contact with less than 60 people in his entire life. And now he sees this. How would you feel? Can you imagine what he must have been going through? Make matters worse for him, someone from the crowd yells out, A fugitive! A fugitive! Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. I think Smith tells the story best from here, though. He later wrote, I had never heard the word fugitive before. I was pretty scared out of my wits. But a slave had little to fear in a New Bedford crowd in the days of slavery. They all stood aside and let me pass. Many other cities all across the north, he would have been put right back on that ship and sent right back from where he came. There's a bounty on that man's head. There is an owner who is willing to pay an awful lot of money for him. Not in this city. In this city, they welcomed him. Between 1840 and 1860, there are approximately 1,000 free African Americans living in the city. We estimate that there was somewhere between 300 and 700 fugitives being harbored in this city, depending on which years you're looking at. You add that all up, it's a larger African American population than existed in Boston, Philadelphia, or New York City at the time. Basically the largest African American population which existed anywhere in the United States outside of the South. Kind of remarkable when you think about it. But there's a problem, right? Think of yourself as a fugitive slave and you are a woman. You run away, you find yourself in New Bedford. Well, great, I got away from my owner, I guess, but what am I gonna do with myself? I have no family, I have no friends, I don't have a place to stay, I don't have a job. How am I going to survive? Well, for many of those women, the answer will be to work in the many boarding houses which would have lined this region. And at our next stop up on top of Johnny Cake Hill, we'll talk a little bit about their story. We're visiting with National Park Ranger Mark Mello at the New Bedford National Historical Park in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He's sharing stories of New Bedford as a safe haven for formerly enslaved African Americans. You're listening to Radio Curious. 
I'm Barry Vogel. Diagonally, sort of kind of across the street from me is the Siemens Bethel. Two Hebrew words, Beth and El. Beth meaning house or place, El meaning God. So house or place of God. Basically, it's a non-denominational place of worship. Now, why would you build a non-denominational place of worship in New Bedford? Well, think about it, my friends. You have a lot of young men coming back to the city with a lot of money in their pockets. What are they going to spend it on? Stuff they should not. Namely, alcohol, gambling, and women. Makes Quakers cringe. How could this be happening in our good city? We need to reform these young men. But how do we do it? We have men of all different kinds of backgrounds and cultures, right? I just mentioned that. All different kind of religious and moral backgrounds. How do we reach out to them no matter what their faith is? Well, we build the place that you, where your religion does not matter. But you can come and you can worship your God as you so choose. Whether you're a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, a pagan, you can come and worship however you want without being judged. Right there on the first floor, if you were to walk through those doors, there's an area called the salt box. It's a makeshift school, rudimentary school. You only learn how to read and how to write. But think about that for a fugitive slave. And for many of these whalers who came to the city, never had learned, never had any of them for the most part. Some of them had, some slave owners had taught them, but most of them had never learned how to read or how to write. I can't help but stand in this spot and look at that building. And it gives me chills every time I think about it. What that building must have meant to a fugitive slave on the Underground Railroad. Not only was it a place where you would not be judged based upon your religion, but it was a place where you could get an education. And what is more empowering than an education? Something special to those men. But back to the boarding house thing. The Mariner's home right there is one of the original boarding houses which was here. Now, as I mentioned, whaling stinks. Not only figuratively, but literally. Whale oil reeks. You're bringing in a lot of it not too far away from here. So this whole region is going to smell awful. So where do you think all the rich folk go? They get out of this region. You can look down upon your assets. You don't have to smell them. So they head up into the city, up the hill, leaving behind many of the old original houses, like the Mariner's home. That man who I said Roach, his home. His daughter donates it to the Port Society to be operated as a boarding house. Basically, a boarding house is like a European hostel. Same idea. It's not quite a hotel or a motel, but it's a place where you can sleep. You're going to have to share a room with strangers, but, you know, it's a place to sleep, a place to eat, and it'll give you a nice little place to stay if you're a whaler here in the city. But what better place for a fugitive slave woman to work than in those boarding houses? It gives them a job. They have housing. Three meals a day. What better setup could you ask for? coming to this city. So a lot of them will find work in these boarding houses. And most of them will be relatively safe. Relatively. You weren't always safe. And one story is of a young girl named Mary. 
Mary worked on a boarding house right up here on top of Johnny Cake Hill, which no longer stands. She works there for a little while. That is until her former owner, a Mr. Wim, from Baltimore, decides to go looking for her. He gets the deputy marshal down there in Baltimore, comes up here to New Bedford, because that's where he hears that Mary is, figures out which boarding house she's working in. Walks into that boarding house, finds Mary, confronts her, points at her, and says, You are my girl. I'm taking you back. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. A woman who thinks she's finally achieved freedom. And now here, staring her in the face, is the one man who wants to bring her back into slavery. It's at this moment, though, that the other young women in the boarding house jump between Mary, Mr. Wim, and the deputy marshal and quote-unquote get into a physical altercation with these two men. Two men are probably twice the size of these young women, and they are armed. And yet these women will get into this altercation long enough for Mary to sneak out the back door and never be heard from again in New Bedford. Or at least they think. Several years later, she'll write a letter to the Republican Standard, the paper here, letter to the editor, and in it, she will write telling us of her story and thanking those women who remain nameless to history for helping her escape from her former owner. Now that may be a great story to some of us, but here's where we have to have a reality check. By the standards of the laws of the 1800s, those women were criminals. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Think of the wording we're using here. Fugitive. When do we use that wording today? Someone who's evading the law. Technically, by the laws of the 1800s, Mary is the rightful property of Mr. Wim. And anybody who helps her to escape from her rightful property is basically aiding in theft. So by the standard of the law, they were criminals. Were they heroes? That is up to each one of you to decide individually. But one thing is for sure, they were heroes to at least one human being. That was the young girl named Mary. Now, that's what the women were doing. What about the men? What would a fugitive slave who was a man do when he got to the city? Well, I can guarantee you one thing. If there is one place on this planet that your owner will never find you, it's the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What better way to escape than to go away on a whaling voyage. And at our next stop, the Customs House, we'll talk a little bit about their story. I want to point your attention to the building right here. This is the Customs House. It's the oldest still operational Customs House in the United States of America. So it's still doing the exact same thing it would have done back in the days of whaling. Certainly there are Customs Houses which are older, the one in Boston is, uh, but this one is the oldest that is still in operation. This building was very important for a whaler, though, because you needed something here in order to get on one of these voyage, voyages. It's called a protection paper. I want you to think of a protection paper basically as the predecessor of a modern passport. It does the same thing. It says, I'm a U.S. citizen, and in foreign ports I am protected by the U.S. government. So very important for a whaler as they go and journey around the world, right? Very important, though, too, for a fugitive slave. Is a slave considered a citizen of the United States of America? No. 
They're a resident, they live here, but they're not a citizen. No citizen could ever be held in slavery. So how do you get around it? Slaves aren't citizens. Fugitive slave gets their hand on one of these pieces of paper. They now have a legal document saying that they are what? A citizen. They now have legal proof that they can no longer be a slave. It's a powerful idea. Would it hold up in a court of law? Depends on who the judge and the jury are. But they do have legal proof now that they can no longer be a slave. But how does someone who's not a citizen get one of these? How do you go about that? Well, there's a couple different ways. One of my favorites is you find a wealthy Quaker merchant in the city, have him walk down here with you, walk through those very doors, walk into the customs official's office, and he walks up and he says something like this. I knew this man's mother from Philadelphia. Wink, wink. This man's mother was free. So what's the big deal? Well, we're dealing with Quakers here, right? When I say Quakers, New Bedford or Guilford Courthouse doesn't automatically pop to mind, right? What usually pops to mind? Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. So guess where these Quakers had business? Down there in Philadelphia. So they're constantly making that journey. Point two, if you were born to a free parent, you too would carry their freedom, especially if it was your mother who was free. You would inherit that freedom. One visitor a couple weeks ago said, well, sort of kind of like an illegal immigrant having a baby here in this country today. Same idea. You would carry the freedom. You carry that citizenship in the country. Not necessarily upstanding stuff, though, right, that these Quaker merchants are doing, right? Did that Quaker merchant know that man's mother? Heck no. He had never met this guy until two hours ago. But he's going to do it to help this guy to get on one of his whale ships. Not a one-way street. Not just doing it out of the good of their heart. He's now that guy is going to go to work for that merchant. But it fulfills that very Quaker belief of let's help people help themselves. Funny when you go down to the Whaling Museum archives, take a look at the African American protection papers. Guess where over 50% of them are from? Philadelphia. There's no way in heck they were all from Philadelphia. But it is proof of what was happening here in this building. There's another way to get a protection paper though. And that is that if I can pass as a tall man of dark skin, dark complexion, dark eyes, dark curly hair, I can become that man as long as I have money to pay for said piece of paper. Get what I'm getting at here? There's a black market for protection papers. Illegal buying and selling of protection papers. So that is what's going on here. And that is how they're getting onto these whale ships, and that is how they're getting out to sea. And like I said, there's no better place to hide than the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He'll never go look in there, I can promise you that. This was the first of our two-part series about the safe haven for formerly enslaved African Americans who made their way on the Underground Railroad to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Our guest is National Park Ranger Mark Mello, who works at the New Bedford National Historical Park. 
The books Mark Mello recommends are Fugitives Gibraltar, Escaping Slaves and Abolitionism in New Bedford, Massachusetts by Catherine Grover, Whale Hunt by Nelson Cole Haley, and Leviathan by Philip Hoare, that's H-O-A-R-E. This program was recorded on September 2nd, 2016 in the Old Town section of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onested and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.